It's time for another episode of Tucson Means Business, featuring Tucson's top entrepreneurs and leaders in the business world. And now your host, Mark Bishop. And welcome to another Tucson Means Business on this uh, another warm day coming into the spring. Well, coming into autumn, really, isn't it? More than anything else. But uh, interesting today, I'll date the podcast, but I was reading today how our president has now got the virus along with his wife. Maybe he should have worn a mask after all, huh? Just goes to show you. But welcome, everybody. This is Tucson Means Business, proudly sponsored by the 49ers Golf and Country Club. And uh, reseating at the moment is looking beautiful if you're driving past at all. Of course, it's not open for golf. Everything's closed down right now. But give it another week or two and everything's back open and back into business and just use all the rules. And there's great deals as usual. The 49ers Golf and Country Club. And if you go onto the site of Tucson Business Radio X, you can click on the banner, go to their website. Website, and there's a lot of uh, interesting news and and uh, useful information for you, okay? And if you're visiting, welcome. Welcome to Tucson. This show represents um, businesses that we normally promote in town, big and small in between, because let's face it, they're the lifeblood. Uh, this particular show, I've decided to go a little bit different along the medical world. I don't do it too often, so I don't often get the chance. I did have the new uh, Tucson ER and hospital in the other day. That was fascinating. And I took a bit of a tour of that today, which was amazing and uh, very, very modern. But that's another story. But today I have two guests. I have a lady and a gentleman. And the lady is... Um, uh, her role is a crisis mobile team first responder. And she works for a mental health agency. A lot of pressure at the moment on everybody, isn't there, with this darn pandemic? You just don't know what to think every day you get up. Well, we're going to have a you know a bit of a look inside what people are thinking, what they're doing, and what uh, my other guest, Wayne Satin. Wayne is uh, he runs a private therapy practice here in Tucson. A very successful gentleman, and he's going to share with us, you know, some of the insights with the pandemic at the moment as well. So I'd like to welcome uh, Karen Jablonski. Hi, Karen. Hi there. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, Mark. You, you work in the, uh, you're the first team responder. Yes, I and am. And you work in the mental health agency. And Wayne Satin. Hi, Wayne. Hey there. How are you? Thanks for taking time out. I know you guys are normally very busy, and you're busy today, but I appreciate the time you've given me. And we're going to look at, uh, you know, I mean... It's a most unusual time, isn't it? Yes. It, it is very difficult for a lot of people. Um, let's find out a little bit about you firstly before we get into the heavy stuff, all right? I want to thank you, which I've done, but uh, your thoughts on how things are really are out there uh, from your role, from what you see every day and what you do. How are people thinking, Karen? And what aren't they thinking? Well, Mark, it was very interesting at the very beginning of the pandemic. We really thought that we would have an influx of calls. What ended up happening was that things really slowed down. It was almost as if everyone was in shock. There's a phenomenon known as fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were frozen in time. And it has taken several months for the reality to kind of hit. And now, in the last couple of months especially, I would say that we're seeing a lot more substance abuse out in the community. Really? Yes. That's one thing then. So you've worked in the mental health field now for, what, over 30 years? Yes. You've seen uh, a lot of stuff. Um, a specialty in crisis intervention and trauma, uh, informed care. Can you explain these roles for us, please, a little more detail? Crisis intervention 
includes an emergency kind of situation where people have been traumatized um, in a more immediate sense. So I have responded to people who have had a loved one die earlier that morning, mm -hmm. uh, such as a mother who found her son dead from an overdose. Right. I was called out to assess the mother to see if she needed any type of acute care at that point because of the shock that she was in, having lost her son very mm. suddenly. Oh, my. I mean, how, how do you do that? As I've come to be in this field over the course of several decades, I've realized how important it is to do self-care. And the whole concept of needing to put on the proverbial oxygen mask first before helping someone else is really true mm -hmm. because I need to keep my tank full on a daily basis in order to most effectively help others. Well, it's a known fact that, you know, uh, there's X amount of energy you're working with, and if that's drained on you every day, it's amazing how you can keep yours up to be able to help others, you know. Yes. Uh, it's uh, it's a, such a sad thing, and, and uh, for a mom to lose any child, and for dad's bad enough, but for mom, you know, uh, you're not supposed to bury your children before you, are you? That's you know, true. So that's very hard. You also worked with foster children. Yes, I worked in the foster care field for 18 years up in Phoenix, and I saw a lot of trauma that children had gone through, uh, having been taken out of their family of origin mm -hmm. and placed in a home. Uh, a lot of children were lucky to be adopted by families that I had placed them with, and those were the very happy stories. Right. Uh, but a lot of the time kids were bounced around from one home to another over the course of years. Well, well, you know, if I asked you what was the biggest issue that you found with these children, would that be it, watching them being bounced around? Yes. I mean, it, children are traumatized no matter how you look at it as soon as they're separated from their family of origin. So the trauma-informed care uh, is the concept that we look at what has happened to a person as opposed to what is wrong with the person. Hmm. So that leads to more compassion for the people that we see out in the community. Right. We really want to get a feel for what they've gone through mm -hmm. and how they've come to the point where they are as we're seeing them. Mm -hmm. You must do an enormous amount of training. It's not just a matter of patting somebody on the back, is it? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a proud wildcat. <laughs> I received my <laughs> psychology degree from the U of A, or now... You, Arizona. And um, it has come in rather handy. A lot of people get a psychology degree and they end up selling cars. I knew when I was only 13 that I wanted to go into this field mm. of mental health. And it's it's a calling. That's it is, the only it? way I can describe it, uh, yeah. Mark. Yeah, I mean, I'm at 13 years of age, you know. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I know what it is for guys, policemen or a fire engine truck driver or something else. But for women, what do they think of at 13 years of age? You know, and certainly not that. And speaking of children, Wayne Satin, he doesn't deal with children. He has a private <laughs> therapy practice here in Tucson. Um, your era of growing up, this was Los Angeles. Yes. And um, that's a pretty rugged city, isn't it? Did you say rugged? Rugged, yes. <laughs> not, not. Uh, I had a pretty nice. Uh, you had a nice one. Yes, I had a nice yes. I, I grew, very good. grew up in the proverbial suburbs, very nice suburbs of 
L.A., mm-hmm. you know, through the 60s and 70s. So it was a good era then, wasn't it? Yeah. Right? That's when men were men and women loved them for it and God knows what else. You went to Philadelphia, though, to attend college. Right. I went and, across uh, the country. And graduate school, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a high school. What was that like? Um, well, it was wonderful. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I grew up in L.A. right through high school and then went off to Philadelphia um, to college and stayed there for grad school, um, which was wonderful in many ways. It was wonderful to kind of branch out and... Um, you know, at that time, for, for any of us, we're growing up a whole lot. And so to be able to go off to, to college, um, it was a, a great time. Ultimately, at the end of all those years, I wanted to come back west. So I mm-hmm. made my way back uh, so nearly did, to California. So when did you come back to do something? Back in 88. Um, I came, I graduated um, back in Philadelphia and then came to Philadelphia, came here to Tucson in 88. So, Wayne, what, you know, what is, do you think that, that led you to be a clinical psychologist. I mean, do you have a calling as well? Or what? I, I don't think as far back as Karen's, quite honestly. I would say that. In fact, in fact, when I finished college, I still was not sure really at all what I wanted to do. Um, I had graduated. I studied philosophy. That was my major in college. And I took that very hmm. thoughtfully, very seriously. I loved my, uh, my major, my studies in philosophy. And in many ways, I ultimately described going into psychology and psychotherapy in particular as sort of applied philosophy because ultimately you know even though you introduced us as medical professionals i i i never quite uh, i'm one of those psychologists who doesn't strongly subscribe to the medical model in other words i don't really think what i'm doing hmm. is being a doctor treating a patient and hmm. looking for a cure i think all those words we use but that isn't really what i think we're doing as psychotherapists okay so yeah. if you were to explain it then how would how would you i'm going to leave that to you how, how would you explain it then if you, if you if it's none of those other things well i mean ultimately it's uh two people one uh with a certain kind of training and understanding all of us as human beings and trying to also learn the art of helping people self-examine I mean, you know, that's the core of uh, philosophy of Socrates, know thyself. And I think ultimately psychotherapy is a process of better knowing thyself. Did you have a favorite like, um, you know, uh, Freud, Fritz Perls, any of them? Well, uh, both of those as examples. But I mean, I definitely was trained in a more psychoanalytic model. So lots of Freud. um, And I came to a a strong appreciation of um, Freud and Freudian theory because i think it's a wonderful theory to understand the depths of our of our being of our of our consciousness Mm -hmm. so freud was probably the largest influence um fritz perls and um the whole mode of therapy that sometimes gets called action-oriented therapy uh which gestalt therapy fritz Mm -hmm. perls Mm -hmm. is is one modality another big influence quite honestly in my evolution as a therapist uh, were my uh father and stepmother who in the second careers in their life um, became therapists, and in particular uh, practiced a type of therapy called psychodrama, which, ah. is, a, which is a very action-oriented yeah, therapy. Yeah, my word. So, yeah. well, now we're getting, Karen, where it sort of came from. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, a little bit in the family there. Um, you primarily provide individual psychotherapy to adults, right? That is true. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, if I was to ask you, has your business expanded, shall we say, due to the pandemic? What would be the honest answer? Well, I think the answer is yes. It's hard for me to analyze why. I I do find myself busier in my 30-year career, 20 years at least in more than 20 years in private practice. I am busier than I've ever been. Um, and I don't always know exactly why, um, but probably a big, in, a big reason is uh, the pandemic. 
Uh, and so that I get busier both for people who are highly distressed and wanting to have the benefit of some counseling and on the flip side, uh, clients that I see who are not quite ready to let go of therapy. I think because of all the stress and strain on all of us, I think people who have that support of therapy are uh, maybe a little slower to let it go mm -hmm. in these recent months than maybe in the past. And Karen, you touched on before, you mentioned too that uh, uh, you've seen an increase in uh, what was it i think um was it suicides substance abuse substance abuse in particular alcohol meth heroin uh, meth is really big here in tucson but in the last couple of weeks we've also been getting more calls for children again and children because a lot of them have been home now for the last seven months and they're feeling a greater sense of isolation. They're not able to be with their friends in person. It has become really difficult for them over time. I think it's all kind of just really sinking in and, and mm. the effects are much more apparent. When we look at this pandemic, we don't know, do we? It's not in the rearview mirror yet. No. We still see another 581 cases, I think today, whatever it was for Arizona mm. overall. You don't know what to believe in some cases, what you see on the news. What are the major things for people that is causing this stress, do you think? Is it, are they business related? Am I going to survive? Uh, will I keep my job, my home, this, that type of thing, the material thing? Or is it more that I am locked up? I can't get out. I'm not mixing with anybody. Mm -hmm. what, what do you see as most? I, you know what, Mark? I think it is a combination I saw a young woman the other day who was contemplating suicide again after having had an overdose a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. because she had lost her job um, several months ago now, and her car was just repossessed. She has not been able to get another job. Mm -hmm. And although she knows in her heart that suicide is not the option because mm -hmm. as I tell people, mm -hmm. suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary issue. And I think that's really important for that's people nice to remember. That's a nice way of putting it, yeah. Yes. Well, it's a factual way of yeah, putting it. It is. Nothing yes. ever lasts bad forever, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So we are seeing a lot more of those calls, the distress that people are feeling over financial issues mm -hmm. and the lack of interaction with friends and loved ones. And the uncertainty of, you know, where's the end game here? There is no end game yet. You know, we have a president, as you said, who mm -hmm. has now contracted the virus. And he's supposed to be very well protected. So if it can happen to him, it can happen, it can to, happen to any one of us. So it conjures up uh, visions in the mind of this thing could creep under the door at any time. We're not protected, really. It could. No one you know, can escape from it. Really. Well, but it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right, right. right? But yeah. I think it's very important to also remember that being proactive is the best way to feel empowered. Hmm, but of course. So and not if we're everybody... taking steps by, you know, yeah. on our own to help ourselves remain healthy and protected in whatever way we can, then I think a lot of the fear can be decreased.
Well, not everybody that gets it is going to be very ill and not everybody that gets it is going to go to hospital and not everybody that gets it is going to die. I mean, you know, but it's still a scary thing. Yes. Well, there is that. I mean, just from what you shared, there is that uncertainty. There's 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 a way that anybody who's conscious at this point in the world has to feel a greater ill at ease. You know, mm-hmm. they're, 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 we don't have to, or at least we don't want to hopefully run scared um, at every moment because most of us will be free of the virus. And like you just said, many who get it will get through it. We'll get through it okay. Mm-hmm. We'll get through it okay. But there is just this great uncertainty about uh, how long will it last and uh, when is it truly safe to open up more vibrantly as a community? Um, you know, what precautions do I want to take and does that and does that give me certainty of not getting it? Well, there. There isn't that certainty. It's wise to do whatever we can as, as reasonable precautions. Mm-hmm. But that uncertainty is what, what I am aware of that creates all of us being a bit more ill at ease. So on top of... Well, there are. You're right. I mean, there's things like you see people with masks on, great, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. Then I was in the uh, somewhere the other day and this woman was serving food and she had the darn mask down under her nose, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be over. So right. I politely reminded... Mm-hmm. Please put it up, you know. Mm-hmm. And guess what her answer was? In fairness to her, well, if I put it up, I get so dry but that my nose bleeds and I don't want the blood to go all over the sandwiches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, right? <laughs> then there's another one I saw wearing a, a, a shield, one of those face oh, shields. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Oh, but all that's wonderful, Mark. Yeah, down that. No, 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 apparently you've still got to wear a mask, Wayne. Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know specific. I don't know specifically right. about that. Right now, you yeah, see yeah. that answer. That's yeah. the fear. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly certain things, right? Mm-hmm. You watch this Fauci guy, whatever it is. I mean, he's a he's a, he's a top man. He's a mm-hmm. professional. Mm-hmm. He knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's been saying all along, wear masks. And then you see on the news, fifty thousand of them gathering at a, some party or some blessed mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. yeah haven't they got a fear of life mm-hmm. at all or a fear of death i mean i don't understand right. well i think for the young you know some of what's gone on for this latest um you know rise again in the numbers invincibility yeah is, is you're right it's not much of a fear of death because when you're 18 20 25 especially male you're not thinking about death. So I think a lot of people who are gathering at uh, the parties like you, mm-hmm. you suggested are young people who, um, you know, are to some degree feeling invulnerable. Um, bulletproof sort of thing. Bulletproof sort of, yeah. I mean, you're both in the medical profession. I'm just wondering how you feel about when you see that type of thing. Do you get mad? You know, Mark, I was sent out to... I was sent out to one of the hospitals here in Tucson to do what's called critical incident stress management sessions Mm -hmm. with any employee of the hospital who felt that they could benefit from crisis intervention services. And the majority of people who came in to see my partner and myself happened to be nurses. And they were the ones who verbalized the highest level of anger Mm -hmm. about having Mm -hmm. spent you know, 12 hours a day that mm-hmm. passed however many months it had been by then, right. caring for people mm-hmm. who had COVID and then going out to stores or wherever and seeing people without masks. Yeah. So they were with really it having long. to grapple. Yeah, with right. it all, watching death every day, right. watching their friends die, right. people in the health thing. I exactly. mean, it's, they, it's such a hard, sorry, go on. They, they also had a large sense of, of guilt 
over not being able to do more for the patients who ended up dying. Yes. So that's, you know. They've got it both ways, haven't they? It's a difficult combination, having anger and guilt together. And, you know, what do you do with that? You know, you really have to be able to process that and take care of yourself. Once again, that's really important, especially for people in the helping field. Struth, you wonder why the uh, the drinking's gone up and uh, with all this business going on. You realize that you had a high level of empathy, Karen, at uh, a pretty young age. What age really? And what, and what brought that out, do you think? Well, I was 13 and <laughs> I was in eighth grade. We had a really great school psychologist, Dr. Boyer, who I went to see numerous times over the course of that year uh, because I was fascinated with the field of psychology. I actually had my very first magazine subscription to Psychology Today before I graduated from eighth grade. Okay. (laughs) Not many 13-year-olds can say that. No, true. But I also realized in... um, in developing a friendship with a woman who I'm still friends with now, that I really wanted to try and help her through her family issues. And I, I felt that I, I had that innate ability to actively listen and empathize with her. And I, I just felt that, yeah, you know what? This is really what I want to do with my life. I want to ask you a question, Wayne, because I've always wondered about this. You know how in some careers you can't get away from the job. Right. It doesn't matter what you do. You right. try and turn off this and that. Doing what you do, does it affect relationships uh, once you share what you do with people? I mean, do they ever think that while you're befriending them that you might be psychoanalyzing them? Well, evidently, yes, because on, on numerous occasions people have uh, halted for a moment as, I, as, as we meet each other and then jokingly make that kind of a remark or that kind of question when mm-hmm. I they ask, what do you do? Oh, I'm a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Oh. 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 <laughs> Have a lovely day. <laughs> um. Well, there's no reason to run from you. You're a friendly fellow. You're timid looking. I mean, nice guy. You know. You'll see his photo up on the site once all this is over and read about him. He's a very, very friendly guy. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, not just like my wife. That's true. That's but true. also he's into baseball, aren't you? Uh, very intensely, yeah. I, I, that goes way back. Uh, you know, when I was 13, I, I was not. <laughs> unlike Karen, I was not thinking about my future profession, kind of health. I was, I was striving, hoping to be the shortstop for the LA Dodgers. Uh, well, you're an avid baseball fan. <laughs> Don't you have a huge collection of cards? I do. Baseball cards, right? I, that is true. Yeah. Um, but you're a Dodger I, fan. I am a Dodger fan. Uh, you know, yes. I've been out here for. 30 years, and, and so I, I like the Diamondbacks as well, but um, down, down, deep in my heart, still a Dodger fan, and this seems to be their year, by the way. Do you remember <laughs> when Diamondbacks won the World Series? Sure. Oh, I, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> that was my first experience of live American baseball. Oh, really? Mm. I was fortunate enough to go to the Bob as it was then, and uh, I think it was the Bob then. It was probably yes. the ball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and the, the big unit was pitching. Oh, oh yes. Big Rand. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell you what, uh, fabulous game. A little bit different to cricket. 
you know. <laughs> Played in many countries in uh, pyjamas, as we say. But our game, uh, Americans just don't seem to understand how can a game last a week, uh, you know, and, and take so long in mites. Well, that's the test stuff. But now cricket has become 50 overs aside. Pakistan, India, uh, New Zealand, Australia, they all play off in night games under the lights. Wow. In coloured, beautiful outfits. <laughs> which is a spectacle. With, lar- with large crowds? With this is a huge, huge crowd. Huge packed crowds. out, hundreds of thousands. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Then they go nuts, you know. So that's cricket. And so baseball, yeah. But baseball's in Australia too. Very popular. Oh, good. Baseball's yeah, okay. in Australia. What do you think of the cardboard cutouts now that are being used <laughs> at the baseball game? From a psychological yes, point of view. Yes, psychologically speaking. Yes. Well, um, I, I think it's a lot of fun, and I think it's wonderful. I think even more effective for the psychology of the sport, or I should, I should say the psychology of the spectator, since I'm watching a lot of games uh, now that it's back and going, is, is the background sound. You know, I mean, in other words, the, the cutout cardboard is fun to see. Lots of smiling faces makes us all kind of smile a little bit. But Have you seen a bull smack a head <laughs> I, yet? I, I have. Yes, yes I, I have. have. <laughs> <laughs> so it is great. <laughs> you should be awarded some kind of bonus yeah, points for that. Say, yeah. Yeah, you know. But the, the background sound that they pipe in, at first I was a little mixed because obviously it's artificial, but it, it does create a little bit more of the sense of the game to hear when they pipe in the buzz of the crowd. Um to, to empty stadiums, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I like the idea of the sound. You need that. Well, I think you do. Yeah, it's very, it'd be very different to you hear know. it just, I mean, you know, we could do it, but uh, very different to just hear it totally silent versus, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a affected sport, I tell yeah. you what. Um, this is Tucson Means Business, and it's on Tucson Business Radio X.com. Of course, uh, uh, we're on different uh, podcast platforms all across uh online and across the globe and so on and we're proudly sponsored by the 49ers golf and country club and we'll be right back you're listening to tucson means business on tucson business radio x right here coming out of the Stuart title building on broadway and of course we're proudly sponsored by the 49ers golf and country club a wonderful course and wonderful club here in tucson i have the director of memberships and tournaments casey polivjack casey tournaments are a big thing for a golf club uh absolutely um we are a semi-private club which means we have membership available but we also are open to the public um with being open to the public we welcome um, non-profit uh, tournaments uh fundraisers um, we specialize in groups from four to 144. see this is an important thing isn't it in the community uh, uh, companies would love to do something for their staff something that's different but they don't want the course to be too hard and they want it to be friendly they want the service to be right and the atmosphere to make it a really fun day. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what you strive to do, isn't it? It's part of your uh, whole job, really. I think that's what we uh, we specialize in is the, how am I going to say this? The, the, the tournament that's not looking at spending too much money because they're in it to make money for their for their charity right so we offer really good uh, facilities uh, a great golf course um but i'm gonna be honest it's not the best golf course in tucson it's not the nicest facilities but everything is good out there and your guests are going to have a good experience because of the value that they're getting 
for uh, the cost of the tournament. There you go. That's an important factor. It's all very well, you know, wanting to have a great day out for everybody, but if it breaks the bank, then it defeats the whole purpose. Absolutely. And if you're trying to raise funds, which is an integral part, because Tucson seems to be a wonderful place for raising funds, there's so many people who support so many wonderful causes. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, great causes out there. And, you know, people get, they kind of come to a, a fork in the road. And, um, you know, you got school sponsorships that, uh, you know, booster clubs. Um, there's so many uh, fundraising uh, facility or uh, possibilities out there that uh, we really have specialized in golf tournaments for people and helping them maximize the amount of money they can make. Mm -hmm. um, I've put together a, a brochure to help people that have never uh, run a golf tournament that will kind of take them from step one until the uh, you know the day of the event that's so. very very good if people uh, from somewhere now maybe they're moving into tucson with a new business new company whatever how can they get hold of you directly uh you know they can call me directly at 520-749-4925 uh extensions 212 but we recommend you go to the the website uh it's a great way to uh you know get information about the club on uh, not only golf tournaments but membership that website is 49ercc.com f-o-r-t-y-n-i-n-e-r-c-c.com there you go casey Belifchak. he's the director of memberships and tournaments he's the fellow to speak to now back to the show so welcome back and i'm speaking with wayne staten and with karen jablonski both in in the health and helpful field of caring about people you know karen you work for a health home which yes. provides crisis mobile team services, as well as ongoing behavioral health services. And this includes, I understand, a community reentry program for people who have been incarcerated. Can you share that with us? And, you know, what's involved with that? Yes, we do provide services for people who have recently been released from both prison and jail. We help them get uh, housing and employment and ongoing um, therapy services if needed. And it's a really effective program for people who might not have the support of friends or family in the community. Coming out of incarceration. Yes. I know, I, I, um, I worked on a project last year, I was sort of very disappointed in this. I thought, uh, you know, that nobody was really, well, there are organizations, I can't say nobody, there are organizations that are doing things. I was trying to do something with reference to those out on parole and those who have come out of jail after mm. doing their term and so on. And uh, I learned so much about the fact that often they've burnt families, they've burnt friends, they've got nowhere to go, exactly. nowhere to stay. Uh, no one will employ them because they're untrustworthy. Two right. out of three will reoffend. Makes you think, you know, what, what's the use? Mm. Funny enough, I heard this morning that in Scotland they're starting a reality television show. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's like uh, yeah. talent from inside. And they're all incarcerated felons. Wow. And I bet you there's some nice singers in there too. Guitarists, piano player, God, sure. no, harps maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you know, why not? I, right. I, this is another topic, but to me there's so much talent that is wasted in jail. Mm. Well, look at Johnny Cash. You know, uh, well. Uh, Merle Haggard. And, and so many others that yeah, yeah. maybe didn't do enough that was that warranted being put in jail for years mm -hmm. or have paid their time and just want to go straight, just want to get out and be, you know, human again and part of society and accepted. Mm -hmm. But they've got these hurdles in front of them. I wanted to ask you what you thought of just 
just the idea of this, because I don't normally touch onto politics, but this thing about with the, uh, you know, Bloomberg paying for the felons to vote, just, just an opinion on that. Do you think that's... How would they react to that, the people that are incarcerated in a case like that? I, I don't have much of a good thought about, you know, how, how those... I mean, I w- I'm sure that they would welcome uh, welcome that opportunity to have somebody else help pay, I guess... I, I don't know the a lot fines, about it. The pains, yes. the fines, the fees, mm-hmm. the, the rest that have to be paid off in order for them to be able to regain their voting rights. Right. Right? But that's really the key I'm getting at. The, the, the right to, to vote, uh-huh. okay, and, and having that voting right again, does it make me feel like somebody again? I, I would hope so. so. You know, I would hope so. I would hope yeah. having, if, we're, if, the, if, the, if the aim is to have people who have been incarcerated to come out with a second chance to truly lead a decent and, and, and uh, civil life, be a, a citizen again, uh, you know, that's crucial for the right to vote again. If, if that's denied... Uh, with no opportunity to regain it, I think that uh, mm-hmm. you know that would be quite alienating. You know, you're, it's a message to them that they're not really a part right. of our society. Yeah, very good, psychological. Very yeah. good. This guy's good. I might go to him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you charge and- a lot? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the first one's free. Thank you very much. Oh, um, let me ask you this then: um, in your practice, because you're not going to give names away or anything else, but right. do you have ex-felons that you would have as clients? Or have you had in the past? Um, not many. I mean, I try to think. I'd have to really search. If it's happened, it's happened fewer than a handful of times in my long career. Um, so I don't have. I imagine there are colleagues who perhaps have established themselves as mm-hmm. particularly skilled to help people who have gone through whatever they've gone through, the hurt and the difficulties and the mistakes before they were in prison. And then being in prison probably is right. typically pretty traumatizing. Yes, I was right? going to say, it would take a bit more, wouldn't it? So um, I, I can't think of, of a person offhand, um, and, and I would wonder if there are colleagues who are especially skilled at trying to help in that reentry that, that you talk guys were about, talking about. Let's talk about your database then, across the board. Is there more executives, men than women, more uh, younger than middle age or older? Is there a specific categorization of your client base in today's whole gestalt that we're going through. Yeah, I see, I do see, you know, unlike when, even though I said I haven't seen many uh, uh, ex-felons or people coming out of prison, but I have seen oh, just a wide variety of, of folks, age-wise, um, ethnically, in our community, uh, rich and poor. I've done a lot of work with people who are very well-established engineers, especially at our at Raytheon here in town. So I've I've worked with with uh, clients who uh, economically are quite comfortable, and I've certainly worked with uh, many clients um, who are uh, you know having a difficult time getting by. Mm-hmm. So a pretty wide variety in in many ways. I, I haven't specialized in um, I, I don't know. What's the biggest complaint? I mean, you, you brought up Raytheon. I, I'm surprised you even brought the name up, but you're sort of like the, were you like a psychologist to the company? No, no, no. Just that Raytheon, you know, is, is a large employer here in town, and that's just an example of where... Well, 10,000 odd or something, isn't oh, it? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Huge, yeah, right. 10,000. Right. So there might be one or two out of them that might need a bit of help occasionally. Well, probably even a few more than that, you know, who have gone through just the, the, the struggles. I mean, I guess really we're talking about... The, Stressful the, jobs or what? All the stressors, Mark, that you and Karen and I, you know, face in the different aspects of life, so relationships or um, or the stressors on the job or problems, uh, uh, various kinds of issues that come up for any of us, um, you know, as human beings. Um, and it hits all, all socioeconomic strata. So um, 
you know, people come in primarily complaining of some degree of depression and or anxiety. And even, you know, those two often melt into the other. But various types of depression or, or anxiety are, the, are the, the main complaint. Sometimes people who have ex been struggling with it for years and years and years. And others mm -hmm. for whom it's come up uh, just recently, you know, in, in, in recent months or in recent years. So it's really been quite a variety of people that I, I work with. What's the difference between a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist? Well, uh, the main difference is uh, one of uh, somewhat different, well, different training. And then most, most people would say that the main thing is that psychiatrists can prescribe medications and psychologists do not yet. Actually, there's a movement. It's been going on for probably 15 or so years um, for psychologists uh, to gain prescription privileges. And in a few states in the country, Has they, really? they do. And why is that? Why, Why do you need then to be able to prescribe? Well, I guess you need to be able to do your job more. Well, I, I, you know, that's all a very interesting issue about you know psychologists and prescription privileges. You know, back to the issue of just psychiatrists versus psychologists. Psychiatrists after college went to four years of medical school, and then on to a few more years of psychiatric training, um, where they can prescribe medication. Myself as a psychologist after college. I went to five years of graduate school, not mm -hmm. medical school, graduate school in psychology, mm -hmm. and then graduated with my doctoral degree in psychology. And I can't prescribe. Um, the issue of why it might be valuable or, or why would psychologists want to do it, first of all, that is variable. Uh, I have uh, wavered in, in my personal interest about whether I would want to do that or not. I think, um, but the, the main idea behind it would be there is a great need for people to be evaluated for medication. And in some ways, there are not enough psychiatrists to go around. Um, right, right. Right. So there is a market, I think, for a psychologist. But then or, you hear about how there's too much subscribing. I, uh, prescribing, it's yes. It's like the other end of the scale. That is the other end. But and I, I am sympathetic to that, frankly. Right, I, I'm, right. I'm a psychologist who believes that somehow our culture in America over the last 20 25 years, 30 years has gotten into prescribing meds too readily. I think we, we prescribe psychiatric medication far more than other countries, even in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting. Um, but nevertheless, we are used to in this country being evaluated for the possible benefit of psychiatric medication. And for that purpose, there aren't enough psychiatrists really to fully go around. Mm -hmm. um, so there probably could be, uh, you know, more, more prescribers could come into the field and, and uh, find patients you know, who need them. You know, you watch, I grew up watching American product, American content on television yeah. uh, before um, we could build our own in Australia. But you go back into the 70s, 80s, it was a norm thing to have a psychiatrist. Yes. It was a norm thing to be able to have someone to go and chat and jokes, right. jokes right. on the couch, jokes with this. Joke, smoking. Certain, you certainly both both were smoking you know, during a therapy session. You know. <laughs> How do you find that today? Is it still okay or is it still a you know a bit of a you don't want anybody to know? Or? You, I mean, just you mean what people's attitudes sense? toward being in therapy? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think we have. Gone, come a long way. I mean, even you're right, even though there was a part of our uh, culture in America, I think going back to the 60s, the 70s, where everybody, but I, I think actually the stigma of getting mental health care has lessened over the years, I, I'd say. Overall, I do think that the stigma has lessened and more, thankfully, more people are uh, comfortable to reach out and get, uh, mm. you know, counseling or psychotherapy help. Um, yeah. You're listening to Wayne Staten who is a private uh, 
uh, practitioner has his own therapy practice here in Tucson. You don't have to go to Phoenix. He's right here in Tucson. <laughs> you can look him up in the book. He has a great Facebook page and all of that. You can find him. Uh, maybe if you see him out on the road on his bike, <laughs> you get 10 points if you get him. Uh, Karen, I want to ask you, you're a little different in your approach in that you combined your love of psychology with nutrition. Yes. Um, hmm. And uh, you've assisted people in working through mental health issues to forge a healthier way of eating. Uh, surely that is not easy. Well, my passion for nutrition goes goes back even further than <laughs> psychology. Before I, 13? I, I became enamored with healthy eating when I was only 12. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. And I have combined the two loves, and my, my business is Mind Over Menu. I have historically helped friends and family members uh, become healthier and lose weight. Okay, so, how, how do you do that? I mean, there's that much stuff on the market today, right? Yes. If you were to say to somebody, just let's say you're at a, a private party or something and someone asked what you do and then you got into chatting what you do in nutrition and they said to you, look, I've tried all sorts of things. Do you sort of look for what their complaint is, what they're suffering from? It's not just a one cutout thing for everybody, is it, when you come to nutrition, right? Exactly, because there's what I would consider to be, a lot of the time, core issues that people have. Mm -hmm. And overeating is one of the symptoms of somebody's core issue, which could go back to unresolved childhood trauma, let's say. And in order... Or misery. Uh, or depression. Exactly. Any or scared of, of the any, pandemic. Any of the aforementioned. Mm -hmm. Anxiety and depression, like Wayne pointed out, kind of almost go hand in hand. When I see people out in the community, those are the two major issues that I hear about, depression and anxiety. And a lot of people who are established with what's called a health home are already on several prescription medications. Mm. And a lot of the time, they're medicating with unhealthy food. Now, when somebody eats unhealthy food, a lot of the time that can actually cause anxiety if mm -hmm. they're eating food that's high in sugar, let's say. Yeah. But and a lot of people it, don't the realize. The chemicals too, right? It's the yes. chemicals that they put into the darn food, right? Exactly. It, it reacts on people. A lot of people have reactions to white flour. Yeah, that's And they're one. not even aware right. that it can be right. affecting them. So what should these people do? What's the, what's the first thing they should do, do you think? Well, awareness is the first step in change. So to, to become more aware of what's causing the overeating or unhealthy eating is a really good first step. And a lot of the time, that's where someone like Wayne would come in with mm -hmm. ongoing therapy. Because when I'm seeing someone out in the community, it's a very small snapshot of what's right. going on in their life. In fact, we try to just kind of zoom in on the last 24 hours of what's been happening. It's almost and you've got to live with them for six months to get a true picture, right? Exactly. A lot of times that's true, yeah. And you, right. there's no way you can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, in some regard, that's what people think we're there for. Like, you know... Uh, a very quick therapy session, but mm -hmm. it's, it's more crisis services. 
So what we're aiming to do is facilitate the ongoing services that are needed, whether that be medication or ongoing therapy, or if somebody is in a much more acute state, mm -hmm. then we would transport that person right. to a higher level of care. You know what I wish was out there? Because I, I, I really do understand the importance of eating correctly of what the chemicals in food can do to your body and your makeup and your psyche. Too much sugar, not enough sugar, this and that. I quit sugar many, many years ago, mm. but mm -hmm. then I'd have something else. But it's when you need that snack during the day and you don't know what healthy thing to get mm -hmm. or it's going to taste as good as getting a donut or it's going <laughs> to taste as good as getting a, a chocolate bar or something. You know what I mean? Right. That, and, and I think if people could go for more of those, I think there's going to be a big market of more of the health foods, real health foods. Yes. Snacks. You know? What do you do? I mean, you don't just go for an apple all the time. The, or you know carrot. what, Mark? I was just going to tell you about a variety of apple that I got turned on to recently called oh. Sweet Tango. Oh. And so where I, is it? I, hap I happened to buy a bag of organic Sweet Tango apples at Whole Foods a couple of weeks yeah. ago. And I think I was Sweet saying tango. to Wayne, this is the best apple I've ever tasted. Really? I Bit into it and it was the crunchiest, <laughs> juiciest oh, apple. It was amazing. Like <laughs> I love that. You walked into that one, Mark. <laughs> so that's a really apple. good idea. Yeah. An apple is always going to be a really good See, I, option. I fell in love with pistachios. Never had them in my life. Oh. I used to eat peanuts. That was my first favorite nut. Absolutely <laughs> love it. Mind you, I'm sick of how they're getting less and less in the packet and more air in there. Yeah. And they're going up in price. Uh. But my wife tells me they're very fattening. So that's terribly discouraging because I, I couldn't put them down. Well, in moderation, nuts are actually really good for you because they have healthy fats. Almonds, yes. Almonds, walnuts, pistachios. Yeah. So, all right. How did you first know? Well, we did. We sort of touched on that. It was 13, and you just knew you wanted to go into the mental health field and help people. What schooling did you end up doing, though? What, what did you do to receive uh, that you had to receive to be able to go and do the work that you're doing now? My bachelor's in psychology through the mm -hmm. university here in Tucson. Mm -hmm. That's one. You, Arizona. I've also done extensive training in trauma-informed care, and I do have the uh, certification in health coaching. Very good. So that's how I'm able to combine the two fields. Well, I, I, you know, I would not imagine for a minute that your chosen career is easy and it's all hunky-dory. What, uh, what keeps you motivated to remain in the field? Knowing that I'm helping people. It really, it's, for me, it, it is as simple as that. Um, I love the connection that I make with people. And I've been doing this job now for five years, as of yesterday, as a matter of fact. Congratulations. Thank you. And so in those five years, if I added up all of the people that mm -hmm. I have been able to interact with, it, it has to be in the thousands at this point. Certainly not cliche for you. I love helping people. It's a real deal, huh? Yes. Because, you know, it takes a special soul, I think, Wayne. To be able to do this work, I think that's you know very true. It certainly takes. Um, I think it takes a, a person who is, as Karen highlights, you know, em empathic and compassionate and curious, 
and curious. I think what helps uh, me stay in the field and stay uh, kind of enlivened is a is a continued interest and curiosity in one another's stories. I don't, mm -hmm. again, I don't mm -hmm. really tend to view myself as the doctor versus the patient, although that's one way of describing it, and certainly not necessarily the expert about life versus uh, helping those who are not expert. Right. But it's, it's the dialogue of continuing to be curious about what people go through and how they're trying to right. recover from difficult times and carry forward um, toward a more fulfilling future. And, and that's not anything different than what I'm trying to do. I read once that uh, one of the highest uh, professions of jumping out of windows is psychiatrists and all the rest of it. Is that a myth? I, I, I believe, I think I've heard those studies too over the years. And so I believe that that may well be true. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't experience it that way in my career here in the, in the community. Um, I mean, why would it be if it was? Do well, they take on some, a right, piece of somebody all the right. time? Is that what it is? I think that it is that. I think it's taking on the, the difficult stories that we listen to and we try to help with and, and empathize with. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think what can make it very difficult and this is a tricky part about being in the helping professions of any sort, which is um, exactly what level of expectation or responsibility we take for somebody necessarily getting a lot better, because that's always an uncertain prospect. It's an uncertain prospect about exactly how well somebody's going to respond to, call it treatment, I call it therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's hard for us to want to help others to do better, and yet uh, not everybody's... Uh, and not everybody will improve. Or... I think there has to be some sort of satisfaction that you need to see and receive uh, that you've done well. Often enough. Uh, you know, often, right, often enough. Because see... it doesn't happen with every single no, individual. Right. No, but, but so it must enough. be like a thrill for you to see somebody really heal. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. it is. Um, uh, it is. I, you know, I, in that respect, it, makes, it comes to my mind like being like a teacher. Many teachers... Uh, obviously are there to help their students and help their students learn mm -hmm. and take off. And many see it. Many teachers do not, just like for me as a psychologist. I don't always know what kind of positive impact mm -hmm. I may have made. And then sometimes I have the fortune of, of having clients return mm -hmm. for a little bit more work that they want to do mm -hmm. and commenting about how helpful it had been. And I don't always see that. No, I that's nice. That's yeah, nice to so know. It is nice. Well, you must be pretty non-threatening with your clients. They've got to be able to feel relaxed with you, I would imagine. I, I would very To be much. able to open up right. and trust you. Right. Capital T. Absolutely. What changes have you seen within our community then that relate to the pandemic? What's the most prolific thing you've seen? Well, uh, uh, hmm. you know, related to the pandemic, I, I think that, again, everybody, all of us are experiencing a greater level of anxiety or unrest with what's going on. Not all equally. It's, I didn't coin this, but I think it's very true, as, it, as somebody said this toward the beginning of this pandemic, that uh, we may all be encountering the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And, and, um, and I realize that. It, it gives me pause to, to be thankful for circumstances that I have and for many people to know that they are... Uh, that others have it far more difficult, you know, with, with far greater difficulty. Would you advise them? Would you say right here and now, look, go see somebody. Don't, feel, don't hold it in. Go and chat. Go and go and see somebody. I, I would absolutely encourage people to not to, to do that, or at least to not feel that there has to be any hard barrier, hard and high barrier to mm -hmm. doing that. You know, again, you were asking earlier about any, um, you know, negative attitudes or stigma about getting mental health help. I think that has gone down over the many years, but mm -hmm. I would I would always be supportive of people not. Um, taking to heart, not taking seriously a stigma as if it's a bad thing to reach out. I, I often tell my clients over the many years, mm -hmm. it takes strength and courage 
to be willing to reach out for a resource rather than feeling like you have to tough it out alone or you're not allowed to reach out for a resource. So what's the best way for a new patient to start a relationship with any clinical psychologist? Well, you know, it, uh, you know, it's a artifact of our American mental health system that we have insurance of different sorts. And so we often have to check and see, or we often choose to check and see what clinicians out there, what psychologists take, what types of insurance people have, you know, whether they're on Medicare or whether they have Magellan or United Behavioral Health or the different, you know, insurance companies that are out there. But then um, beyond seeing who might be in your panel, you, you reach out, uh, whether it's um, just to see how you feel in front of, the, you know, with that therapist. You talked about trust with a capital T. So mm -hmm. a lot of times mm -hmm. um, people may have a session or two with a therapist and see if they feel a great degree of comfort and safety and trust and support. Um, if not, I think people should feel quite okay about you know, reaching out to somebody else because mm -hmm. you do you do need to feel that trustworthy relationship. That is that is crucial. Do you get singles a lot or couples as well? Some couples. I definitely work with some couples, but by far and away, the huge majority of my practice is working on individual therapy with teens and uh, and primarily adults. And Karen Jablonski, what what would you have done differently, if anything, years ago with regard to your occupation? Nothing that I can think of right now. Oh, I would have been an actress. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you might have had to wait some tables, you know, and all that sort of jazz. That's but why psychodrama. Was, psychodrama, yes, there I, you go. I do love psychodrama. I mean, it's not an easy game. Does the industry lose staffing all the time? I mean, it must be a toll on lifestyle and psyche. Uh, what do you do? I mean, what do you do to prevent burnout? I hike. To Mamak Hill. <laughs> that, that has been my go-to over the past year since January. My goal has been to get up there 100 times. I'm at number 60. Well, I'm going on 64 tomorrow morning. All right. So Good luck. closing in. Yes. How can people get help quickly if they need someone to talk to, Karen, from your perspective? I am very glad you asked that, Mark, because no matter where someone is in Pima County, all someone has to do is reach out and call 520-622-6000 and they will be connected with the crisis line and that dispatcher will dispatch a crisis team 24 hours a day. It does not matter if someone has insurance or where they are, they can, the person can be standing in front of a Circle K, the crisis team will show up in a, usually a nice white Versa, and uh, conduct a crisis assessment and then facilitate ongoing services for the person. So it's really important for people out here in the community to know that there, there is that free crisis mobile team service, and a lot of people don't know that. Well, remind me, we've got to get those numbers up on the site, okay, on, yes. on your bio, if you don't mind. It's, like, it's not right. like they're calling you direct or anything. It's, no. It's this just is, the public number. This is and, a, uh, can go to a that. crisis line dis yeah. dispatch that they'll be connected to. You do great work. I mean, Wayne, my sort of feeling is, what would we do without them? You know. Absolutely. I mean, I would want to highlight in terms of the work that, that Karen does in, in the agency in town that, uh, you know, we're, we're facing all kinds of... Um, societal 
questioning and unrest about the role of the police and, and how the police interact with the community. And, mm-hmm. and there's lots of mention, important mention, about the need for police and law enforcement to have the aid of social support services like what Karen does here mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Pima County. Um, I, I imagine that her agency uh, and that service is underfunded, as it often is in many communities. But at least we have that kind of service where sometimes she accompanies police um, to deal with issues that are more really? mental health and social service oriented, uh, a crisis in that area rather than um, a, a law enforcement issue. The stories uh, you could tell, eh, Karen? Yeah. Yes. That is true. Amazing maybe, stories. Maybe a book one day, huh? <laughs> exactly. Wayne, what's... What would you say is the best form of therapy? Do you mean um, like theoretical orientation? Or what? In layman's terms, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the best form, in my mind, of therapy is an individual finding that therapist um, with whom they can, they can establish a comfortable, supportive, and trustworthy relationship. That's when good therapy is done. Um, I, at first, I was going to get tripped up on your question by talking about the different schools of therapy. You know, which is the best? Is it psychoanalytic? Is it cognitive behavioral? Is it gestalt? No. You know, the research I has, wouldn't has, know that. Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, right. You answered it right. beautifully and perfectly. Right, because the research would indicate research has been done, and at least the research that, that uh, convinces me or affects me is the research that shows that whatever your school of training was in, in these different theories um, – uh, it, it is ultimately the therapeutic relationship, the relationship that the individual establishes with that therapist where they feel safe to open up and self-examine and hear feedback to consider. Um, that's where good therapy happens. And that's why, even if I can be a part of it, and I, and I hope that I can be a helpful part of it, when people improve, the bulk of the responsibility, the bulk of the credit for their improvement belongs to them, not to me. I hope I have a role because I'm... Um, you know, apparently you're professional and being paid for what I do, but um, but I do know that when people improve and make uh, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful progress, that I'm happy to see uh, the bulk of the responsibility or, or and credit belongs to them. Well, I know you care. And a quick plug: what's the easiest way for people to find you? Well, um, you can find me, I'm sure, online. But seven three three two four two five. I believe that's well, we'll get that down. Yeah, if, you'll get if, that down because I, I hardly I'll, ever call I'll get it myself. Because people don't remember. Yeah, numbers, my name again. Driving you know, or doing right, something, yeah, you know. Right. But okay, so Wayne Satin, right, uh, private psychologist, runs a therapy practice right here in Tucson. Has done for many years. Very good at what he does. And I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy day to come on Tucson Means Business. It's been wonderful having you. It's You've wonderful. You've given us a different side of things that. Uh, it's made me think a little. It's very good. Good. A nice conversation. Nice chance to, to chat. And Karen Jablonski, uh, crisis mobile team first responder for a mental health agency here in Tucson and many other things. A wonderful job. Thanks for the work you do in the community, Karen. Well, thank you, Mark. You for, know, and keep up your good this work. Opportunity to it's lovely to have you. To very do good. The interview. There we go for today on Tucson Means Business, proudly brought to us by the 49ers Golf and Country Club, an institution that's the hidden jewel of the desert out there on Tanker Verde, past the Emily Gray School on the right-hand side, a reseeding, beautiful green at the moment, and the restaurant will be opening again soon, and everything will be there, so uh, support them, won't you? And, of course, we're broadcasting live from the studios of Stuart Title here at the Stuart Title Corporate Offices on Broadway, is where the uh, studio is for Tucson Business Radio X. I'm your host, Mark Bishop. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you soon.